Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Why don't you do like a fist bump when you said that? <laughs> I'm projecting strength. And today we're talking about Chantal Ackerman. The muscles from Brussels. <laughs> do not think that's <laughs> the way people describe her. I know Jean-Claude Van Damme actually took her moniker because he was such a big fan. <laughs> so for people that don't know who Chantal Ackerman is, how would you describe her, Will? Oh, God, I, uh, you've really put me on the spot here. She makes... Okay, first of all, I love Chantal Ackerman, so I'm just going to do... <laughs> you're going to you're gonna put down your intellectual credentials, just drop it right on the table. So now I'm going to uh, explain it like I would to a four-year-old. Uh, Chantal Ackerman uh, makes uh, long and slow movies about lonely and alienated people. Mm-hmm, that's and, right. Who often have mommy issues. Yes. And she recently passed away a few years ago, but she has been making movies since the early 70s when she famously stole a bunch of 35 millimeter black and white film from somewhere she was visiting to make a first picture, which you actually saw, Will. Je tu illa. Well, first of all, I want to I want to talk about what she's most famous for, mm-hmm. which is Jean Dielman, yeah. landmark of uh, uh, feminist cinema. I-, I remember I saw this movie. I'll just say what my experience with it is. And because I think you saw it this week. I too. did. Uh, I was in second year university when I went to see this movie at the Cinematheque, I think in 2008. And I went almost as a joke. Why? Because I'd heard that this movie was this 205 minute movie where all of it was just a woman doing household chores and, and that it was supposed to be a masterpiece. Did you go by yourself to like go and tell your friends on the school ground of the <laughs> university that like Well, I didn't plan to tell anyone, but part of me thought this seems like this seems like a test. This seems like it's, and also like a parody of art film. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, aside from Andy Warhol filming the Statue of Liberty for eight hours. Yeah. Like what else I mean, is there for me to building, see? Yeah. Uh, so I went there fully not expecting to make it all the way through. And I have to say it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. So take a step theater. by step of you watching the film. Was it a crowd? Was there a big crowd? Yeah, it was sold out. And did people get up and leave? I don't think they did very much. Uh, there were certainly bathroom breaks, mm-hmm. but the movie stars Delphine Seyrig from Last Year at Marion Bad as Jean Dielman, a homemaker in Paris. And we see her as she mops the floor, as she vacuums, as she sweeps, as, as she, she feeds her son. Uh, her son come, comes home once each night and mm-hmm. goes to bed. Uh, we see her uh, chop vegetables. We see her bathe. And uh, once a day, we see a mysterious man come in, and she goes to the other room with the man. Then she emerges from the room with some money, and she puts it away for safekeeping. So you see the first day, and then you see the second day, and then she wakes up on the third day, and you think, holy shit, we're going to see her do all that stuff again. I and am going to go cla- out of my mind. We should clarify for people <laughs> that the film is also shot in static, almost Wes Anderson-style tableaus. Yeah. Where you just see her do this thing, and then there'll be like a cut when she moves out of, usually to go to the next thing that she's going to do. Because it's 205 minutes, basically each day takes about an hour. But even though it's an hour, it feels like you're there for a day. Mm-hmm. There is still a great cumulative impact as it goes along, because as it goes along, you can see her get slowly more and more stifled, more and more restless. She starts getting a little bit more and more erratic. Anytime she leaves, she checks her mailbox, and of course there's nothing in the mailbox, But then as the days go on, you see her checking more and more perfunctorily and like slamming the mailbox, just little things like that. Uh, She's making potatoes and at one point like it boils over and they're ruined. Mm -hmm. It's like 
once you see the first base day, the second day are those tasks kind of a little bit askew. Yeah. Like, they're not exactly the same. They just feel a little bit wrong. I was reading an article by Jonathan Rosenbaum called Romance of the Ordinary, where he mentions that one of her key preoccupations is the discomfort of bodies in rooms. And as the days go on, you think that she's the master of this house. She's the master of her routine. But there is an increasing discomfort within the boundaries of this house. Like, there's a long stretch of the movie towards the end where there's a baby, which whenever she picks it up and starts, like, cradling it, the baby cries. And then when she puts it down, it doesn't cry anymore. Like, a scene like this reminds me of Jerry Lewis and cracking up <laughs> as he's, as he's like, slipping on the floor trying to, trying to, trying to get in a chair. <laughs> <laughs> so... You're saying that, like, the character's inability to uh, kind of implement herself in the environment yeah. is like Jerry Lewis. And this is another reason why Jerry Lewis is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. <laughs> Both Jerry Lewis and Ackerman are obsessed with, uh, you know, the discomfort of a body. In there's a, a reason that the French really loved Ackerman and they love <laughs> Jerry Lewis. They're one and the same. And there's th- also this sense of when you have so much to do, seemingly, but you also have nothing to do. How it can just eat away at you. Like she goes, at one point she goes and leaves the apartment and goes to a cafe. And she just sits in the cafe for five or ten minutes doing nothing. Because, well, you know, she doesn't have any friends. What's she going to do at the cafe? So then she goes back. All this busy work to keep her mind off the howling void that is her life. Now, did you know how the film ended? I did not. Because I did. I could kind of guess how it was going to end as I watched it. This film, like all of uh, Ackerman's films is a story that's about her mother. She, uh, in a documentary I watched, I Don't Belong Anywhere, the cinema of Chantal Ackerman, says that she saw Jean Dillman as a kind of reflection of what her mother had to go through to make her life for herself. Mm-hmm. And maybe had to do things that she did not want to do to be able to keep going mm-hmm. and to support the people that were in her life in the uh, case of Jean Dillman being her son, who is only there usually in the evenings. <laughs> Watching this movie in a theater was an extraordinary experience because uh, you, you saw it at home, so it probably didn't have the same nope, impact. It didn't. But when you're trapped with it, you really do feel like you're trapped with it. And you become more conscious of Ackerman's use of sound, which is extraordinary. Like by the third day, the clicking of her heels on the floor, the sound of the knife chopping the vegetables, it becomes almost overwhelming. <laughs> You're like, holy shit, stop chopping the vegetables. I'm going to go insane. <laughs> Can you imagine people that Criterion just put this out on Blu-ray and like bought it and went, can't wait to watch this a bunch of times at home. Yeah, well, you know, because Chantal Ackerman is, I think, generally considered maybe the best female filmmaker who ever lived, that, you know, that's often thrown around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people have bought, bought it. it not knowing what it is. Yeah, and, and kind of, kind of... And, here, and just hearing that it was kind of a vaguely feminist movie, mm-hmm. um, and which is great because they saw a great film. But the the biggest insight that I got from seeing it, and I think the insight that I got that changed the way I approach movies, is understanding that not all boredom is the same. Yeah. Well, you hear that a lot when people talk about Tarkovsky's films as well. Yeah. And don't give me that argument that boredom is something that 
is specific to everybody. No, there is stuff that is designed to be boring. Yeah, boredom can have texture too. Mm -hmm. As I watch her movies, there often feels like a moment when I'm watching a shot that goes on endlessly. And for about 30 seconds, I think, when is this shot going to cut? And then I learn to live in the shot. Well, she's creating tension in that shot, right? She's said it herself that she would try to like shorten shots and found that they just didn't work Mm -hmm. because the cut has so much impact Mm -hmm. when you have a shot long enough that the audience realizes that there's been no cut. Mm -hmm. And then when the cut finally comes, it's not only a moment of relief, but also a transitional, almost emotional one into the next shot. Absolutely. There are some scenes in News from Home, which I watched this week, where where it can just be, you know, a shot of a street and then it cuts to a shot of the, the subway finally after five minutes and it feels like jarring and violent also when it's a long static shot for so long it makes the audience become more participatory if anything happens in the shot it becomes a big event and you're forced also when nothing is happening in the shot to kind of cast around and yeah look for something to look at so news from home is a film that Chantal ackerman made while she was staying in new york from 1971 to 1973 getting in that uh New York underground scene that was being uh, heralded by people like Jonas Mekas. And the film is static shots. Well, not the camera moves a little bit. There's some panning shots in the movie. And there's a lot of motion within the shots of people moving in and out. Of New York. And every now and then you hear a letter from uh, Chantal Ackerman's mother being read by Chantal Ackerman that plays over the shot. Doesn't really have anything to do with what you're seeing. And it's the most banal and trivial things other than the fact that Ackerman's mother is constantly berating her daughter, sadly. Why don't you write more letters to me? And we're also hearing about so much stuff that's happening over there, whether it's people who are in the hospital or people who have gotten married or, you know, the store has gone out of business, that you can imagine Ackerman getting these letters and being in this kind of lonely, alienating city and you know, feeling even more lonely. Well, Ackerman talked about that she was thinking about her mother when she was flying over New York and looking down at it and realizing that these minuscule problems that are going back home mean nothing in the giant expanse that is New York City. This movie illustrates a paradox, which is that New York is so big and it has so many people in it, but it can also feel like the loneliest city in the world. You see these long shots on the subway of people coming in and out, and all of these people have their own stories, but they might as well not have their own stories because you'll never know what they are. They'll These people will never know each other. And that, that can feel incredibly alienating when you've gone to this city that's ostensibly one of the biggest and busiest in the world and nobody knows each other. So as you may have noticed, if you've never heard of Ackerman before, she is not a filmmaker that tells you how to feel. Yeah, She likes to evoke emotions in you. That's what these images are supposed to do. Now, watching News From Home, something that crossed my mind is that everyone is going to bring their own baggage to this film Mm -hmm. because the nature of it is that it's not telling you how to feel and its story within the first three minutes. You get what it is. Mm -hmm. It's never going to expand or do anything really different than these letters you're getting from her mother. So it's how your life has led up to the point of watching this film that is going to affect the emotional reaction you have to it. Because when you're looking at the frame and the shot goes on forever, your thoughts are automatically going to turn inward. Mm-hmm. And you're going to start thinking about other stuff than necessarily just what's going on in the frame. Because nothing is going on in the frame. Right. Like at the beginning, there's shots of New York. And I was looking at it. I'm like looking around, like you said, looking for anything to happen. And I started going, huh, I wonder how I felt when I moved to Toronto. Did I stay in contact with my mom enough? And I mean, you lived in New York yourself. 
Yeah, I mean, I love New York, uh, and I appreciated this movie, first of all, just as a time capsule. I mean, this is the closest you're going to get to traveling back in time and just being in 1970s New York. Like if you just sat on a corner and looked out, that's what this movie is. And you see all these people who are wearing, you know, 70s New York fashions being there. And we don't see, for the most part, very photogenic spots in New York. We see some ugly subways and some ugly back streets. And it makes you think about how, I don't know, how many movies have I seen that are either filmed in or set in 70s New York, but they always seem so iconic. Mm -hmm. Like, this is how it actually was if you lived there. You know, there's this guy at the deli, and there are these people on the subway, and there are these, you know, there's this prostitute on the street, and there's all this ugliness. I was thinking (laughs) while I was watching it that these people on screen probably never knew they were in a movie either. And that kind of, like, bugged me because it made me think, like, like these people probably died not knowing they were in a film that many people consider a classic <laughs> and was released on the Criterion label. Yeah. Did, did you, I don't know, maybe this is too personal a question, but did you think of your own family when you were watching this very much? I did. Yeah. My mother calls me all the time saying I don't call her enough and stuff like that. Yeah. And, like, how important it is when I call her. Being my mother is French as well, so it had other kind of parallels of my own life. Well, it's difficult to know what to do when you're uh, coming of age a little bit because, you know, in this, in this movie, she moves to another city. She's still a young person and she's still establishing herself. And you think, well, what is my responsibility to my family? Should I... I mean, how much time can I spend talk, talking to her when mother? I have to asks define her myself. to write a letter every day yeah. and tells her that that is all she has. Yeah, and those that, letters that's, and that's rough. That's emotional blackmail. And there's some interesting stuff that I noticed watching the movie that doesn't really come out when you watch it with subtitles because the dialogue is mixed in a way that it's supposed to overtake the narration so you can't even hear it at some points just to underline the fact that what her mother's saying doesn't matter (laughs) and that the city is kind of overtaking it because Chateau Ackerman's life is kind of you know in a different place than it was before also visually as seemingly simple as a lot of these images are some of them are incredibly beautiful I'm thinking of two in particular one is this static shot on a New York subway platform where it's framed very geometrically with the pillars of the station and the bricks of the wall. And you see people entering and exiting the screen almost like a, like, you know, like a side-scroller video game, <laughs> to, to use a lowbrow example. Yeah, we're talking about intellectual stuff here, Will. <laughs> How dare you? You know, she, she's a filmmaker who's very meticulous with her kind of construction of the frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is the last 10 minutes of the movie, which are a long shot of her on a ferry as it's leaving New York from from the southern tip of, of Manhattan. And you see the city recede slowly into the clouds as a couple of birds are flying toward the camera. I'm not sure I could explain what the symbolic significance of that is. I just know that it's very beautiful. I'm sure there would be some symbolic yeah. significance. I've watched interviews of Ackerman talk about her work. And as opposed to the way that her films actually are, she was kind of like a firecracker in real life, mm-hmm. like very excitable and excited about her films. Mm-hmm. And she used to say that, For example, in a movie like South that she made about uh, the American South and the fact that a black man was murdered in a town she was filming, when she shows a tree, she sees someone being lynched on it. Hmm. And she's just going to show you that tree and not give context. Hmm. So she expects either the audience to have a similar reaction to her or to have another reaction based upon their own life experiences, which is a weird thing to balance, right? Mm -hmm. And you can understand why someone would watch News From Home and go, man, this film is super boring. 
Yeah. Because I'm not getting anything out of it. Yeah. But I re- appreciated the movie, I guess, the most as an immersive experience. Yeah. I, I've rarely seen a movie where I felt to the extent that I do with this one that I lived in it for a time. Be- for well, a time. because it's not demanding anything from you, right? But while it's demanding a lot from you. It is, but it's not requesting specific emotions. Yeah. Uh, Chantal Ackerman uh, liked to say that the way she sees movies is that she wants you to realize that time is passing, that you have experienced that time. Otherwise, when you go see an action-adventure film and you have a bunch of fun and you're like, whoa, I can't believe there was only like 90 minutes. You have lost that time because you have not experienced it. And she said that her movies, she wanted them to be experiences. Well, so I watched Les Rendezvous Mm -hmm. d'Anna from 1978, which was her follow-up to Jean Dielman. I probably uh, pronounced that very badly in my non-Francophone accent. Uh, And this movie follows uh, a filmmaker played by Aurora Clement, uh, playing Chantal Ackerman. <laughs> basically, a Belgian filmmaker who's on a promotional tour of Europe with her new film. And we see her, you know, on trains, going from city to city, having three different encounters. Uh, one that's a one-night stand, one that's with her mother, and one that's with an ex-boyfriend. And so much time is spent of her on the train, looking out the window, just just seeing it go by. And so many stack shots of her, just her sitting on the train. Uh, and it's over two hours long. So, I mean, somebody could be forgiven for finding it almost unendurable, but it made me think of train voyages that I've been on and how, you know, all train stations look the same. All hotels look the same. So many areas of cities look the same. And there's something very, well, to use to use a word that's applied to her work a lot, alienating about mm. that experience. And there's something about travel, even though it you think it should be fun, it can be very conducive to loneliness. Yeah, I mean, if there's anything that you should take out of most of Chateau Ackerman's films is that her characters are lonely and that they will never find any kind of happiness except for maybe the one in her mother's embrace. <laughs> but that's also very crushing and leads to more loneliness. But yet, oddly enough, I found Le Rendezvous Diana also very beautiful and I think partly because it was nice to see a feeling and an experience I've seen I've so rarely seen expressed articulated in a movie. So so it feels nice to share that feeling with Chantal Ackerman. Mm. Um and but it's also giving you something that films are not technically engineered to deliver to an audience, right? To make them feel lonely and to make them yeah. feel dreary. But but when you share that loneliness with Chantal Ackerman, you feel less lonely because you feel that somebody else has had that feeling too. Mm. How's that for a pseudo profundity? (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel more lonely or less lonely now? Well, right now I feel great because I'm with you, my pal Justin, (laughs) recording a podcast that's going to go out to hundreds of people. (laughs) That's true. Important cinema nation. (laughs) And Chantal Ackerman continues her career making variations on these films. Every now and then she'd throw a curveball. Like she made Golden 80s, which is a musical set in a shopping mall. Mm -hmm. But it's also about the kind of alienation of trying to find your place in life and that these structures, in this case being an indoor shopping mall, offering no satisfaction Mm. to the individual. And she made a comedy starring William Hurt called A Couch in New York. The minute your voice went up a little bit, I knew that's the movie you were going to go to. (laughs) 
I haven't seen this movie. And in fact, I was shocked when uh, I found out she directed it because this is one that I would see at Blockbuster Video all the time in the previously viewed section. I read an interview with Chantal Ackerman where she said she was genuinely disappointed with the reaction to the film because as a filmmaker... She wants people to see her films, mm-hmm. whether they be like alienating emotional experiences. She wants asses in seats so she can share the message she was trying to put up on screen. And with the couch in New York, all she wanted to do was to make like a light, fluffy, romantic comedy. And nobody went and saw it. Yeah, if you're going to sell out, you want people to buy. <laughs> and she said that the reason was that people that wanted a Chantel Ackerman film were disappointed. And then nobody else came because they didn't advertise it correctly. It, you mean Chantel Ackerman nation didn't show <laughs> up. That's the, uh... right. <laughs> and Chantel Ackerman, she always, she was always working in some form, whether it be through visual installations or even her last film, no home movies, which was actually the first time that I ever heard about her because I didn't take any film history classes or anything like that. Really, I saw it at TIFF and uh, you know, I, Jean Dielman had had such a big effect on me. It was such a, kind of a paradigm shifting movie for me that I waited a full seven or eight years to see another one of her movies. And <laughs> you it didn't was rush no... out and like write a list of all her films I... to check them off as you watch them? I mean, it just seemed like a lot of work. <laughs> I, I had that Criterion Eclipse box set sitting on my shelf for about seven years. Uh, I think it's Chantal Ackerman in the 70s, it's right. called, right? Right, which has uh, uh, News from Home. No, Je tue yeah. And, and, uh, and the, the other one. Uh, the Rendezvous d'Anna, the, uh, I don't know what it's yeah, in English. And, and some shorts. So I, yeah, I saw No Home Movie and I feel like it's one that's lingered with me since I saw it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't uh, really know what to make of it at the time because it's so. Well, it is a home movie. It's and very it rough feels looking. also like a summation of all her work up until then. Right. So if you don't, if you hadn't really followed uh, her relationship with her mother, it, it it doesn't quite mean the same to you. But I will say that even when I saw it that first time. Uh, her mother's decline in the last 20 minutes of the film uh, hit me pretty hard. And it's specifically even more difficult when you consider that Chantal Ackerman committed suicide after the movie came out mm-hmm. and her mother had passed away. Mm-hmm. And she saw says in the documentary, I Don't Belong Anywhere, that her mother had passed away by the time she's doing those interviews. And she says she doesn't even really understand what else there is in life for her at that point. Wow. And obviously that depression did overtake her in some way, even though that in the doc, she's very smiley and happy to talk about her films. Well, I definitely consider this kind of a work in progress uh, episode, if anything, because I'm I've only scratched the surface of her work. But I'm uh, (laughs) but apparently I've uh, I've seen everything I need to see because it's the same themes over and over again. Yeah, I was (laughs) going to say that, like, in 10 years, you're going to tackle some of her other films once you can watch them in VR. Can you imagine news from home? Like in a VR set, so you can't look at anything else but these city streets. You know what? I'm sold. Let's uh, <laughs> let's do it. All right, the Chantal Ackerman collection now in virtual reality. We'll, we'll do a remake where we just go to New York now and uh, and put the same letters. Or how about Toronto, where it's all like all the condos and stuff like that. Yeah, and, the, and then we have your uh, mother leaving voicemails and my mother as well, <laughs> being like, "You haven't talked to me in two weeks. I haven't heard of you. What's up?" Yeah. All right. So, do we have any letters, Will? Uh, I don't know. Do we? <laughs> All right, so we do have some letters. Oh, nice. And this one... First it... of all, thank you to Important Cinema Nation for, uh, sending, for sending us letters, because I really wouldn't know what to do without them. I really don't like it when you call it Important Cinema Nation, because that's just a riff on Rob Ford Nation. Uh, well, because when I run for public office, and I will, uh, I, I, and, and I become a demagogue, I'm going to need some followers. <laughs> And you're going to get him from Important Cinema Nation and your other podcast, Michael and Us? Right. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll of course, be running as a hardline Republican, so I don't need those, <laughs> those fucking Luke 
savage lefties over there. <laughs> Listen to Michael and us weekly. <laughs> All right. So the letter goes, dear sirs, if you were to watch every movie ever made with the secrets of the world unlock. Oh, what a waste of time that would be. <laughs> I say no. I think it is important especially when I was a kid to ingest as much media as I could because it did teach me kind of life lessons within the context of a simple genre that I feel like I use in my day-to-day life to this day. I think everything you uh, consume goes into the big uh, primordial soup that is your brain and informs you in some way. Having said that, I think there are uh, certain kinds of films that I've seen enough of. Uh, I don't need to see any movies you know, with, I don't know, what, what's a, what's a shitty kind of movie? Superhero movies? I mean, do I need to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2? Probably not. I've, I've seen the first one. Maybe I should. I do. Saw it twice. I saw it once for you. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, you know, I think, I think uh, you can also take some time to read some books and uh, listen to some music. Yeah. And while obviously movie is the purest art. <laughs> oh, Because it's sure. got music, it's got words, it's got pictures. At the same time, a lot of films... Uh, fall within the same kind of structural conceits that you will not see in music and or books or theater or opera, which I know that Will experiences at least once a year. So we can say that he can. I probably go two or three times a year to the opera. Okay. Uh, I was talking to Emily, my girlfriend, and she thought you went every month. And I went, I don't go every month. (laughs) I was like, no. But the idea of watching everything is such a fool's errand. Number one, you can't. You're going to die. Number two, there's so much crap out there. Why would you watch it? Yeah. I've seen so many movies, I pretty much get them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of the important cinema club. Thank you, everybody. All I want to do is go to parties now. If I watch every movie labeled comedy on Netflix, will I become a funnier person? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) Well, I mean... Uh, you will definitely listen. I'm signed up for a comedy workshop. That's going to make me funnier, right? Well, you'll definitely not true. Uh, become more acquainted with like uh, the hacky tropes of comedy. I think if you see all the comedies on Netflix, you will grow to find comedy less funny. <laughs> Let me because just you say, I've seen the same joke so many times. That Adam Sandler, a lot of movies on Netflix. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. I would say if you want to become funnier in a way that people will at least nod and go, hmm, that is funny. Just watch all the Simpsons from season three to ten. Yeah. And just regurgitate those jokes. Yeah, or uh, watch uh, Jimmy Fallon every night and do his monologue jokes to your friends as if you made them up. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever do that? Did you ever watch David Letterman and pretend that they were your jokes? No, I actually, like, from a young age, had a strong sense of honor about that kind of thing. Hmm. Also, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when little children recite jokes that they saw on TV as if they thought of them, it's never convincing. (laughs) Yeah, I like to imagine that you're at, like, a Christmas party or something like that, and your uh, cousin is telling you a joke, and you're like, you did not come up with that. Yeah. He finishes... I also used you guys as a reference on a job application. You know what to do. Thanks, Adam Maley. I actually want to hear more about that. What job could it possibly have been? <laughs> well, if I get that phone call, I'm going to go, why, yes, this person has, I'm miming of being on the phone for Will's benefit. <laughs> this is great for the radio, yeah. Um, he has impeccable podcasting tastes. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't know about him as a person other than that, but if you're going to judge someone by the things they consume, hire this man. He's written free content for us to read on the air, and uh, so he's kind of like our unpaid intern. <laughs> 
All right. So you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, which, you know, I, I got to tell you guys, Important Cinema Nation, shame on you because we've said that for the last two weeks that you should rate and review us on iTunes. And what have you done? You haven't. Well, I should point out that I want to make this the summer of a thousand listeners. <laughs> Can we do it? Yeah. So my goal is that after a week on new episodes, we have a thousand listeners. We're halfway there. Yeah. It only took us two years to get, I don't know, 550 per week. Maybe. We, we've had uh, on episodes over a thousand listens. Yeah. The ones that say like best of 2016. Yeah. Because people like the lists. Oh, by the way, uh, Patreon episode this week, we're talking the Brendan Fraser <laughs> classic, The Mummy. And mummy movies in general. Yes. Have we seen the new Tom Cruise mummy movie? You'll have to listen to find out. We didn't. <laughs> Spoiler. So what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about a monolithic figure in the film landscape, the Criterion Collection. What is it? What does it mean? Uh, how has it shaped the canon? What is what is it as a business? What are some of the best movies that have come out on it? Tiny Furniture by Lena Dunham. Which we're going to watch. We're going to watch it. I don't know. I haven't seen Tiny Furniture. Maybe I'll love it. I watched 15 minutes and went, it's not for me, but now I'm going to sit down and watch all of it. Have you ever seen Girls, the TV show? Uh, two episodes. Did you like them? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I appreciated them. Yeah. Wait, okay. All right. So that's what we're doing next week. The Criterion Collection. And until then, my name is Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. All right, Will. We need to tease this Criterion episode next week. And we're going to do it through your Lena Dunham uh, epic tale that happened to you. All right, guys, this is going to take a few minutes, but this is my relationship with Lena Dunham. So You dated her. I dated her. Uh, <laughs> you were in New York, right? I, I was a member of the band Fun, and I uh, dated <laughs> Lena Dunham, yes. Uh, so in 2011 to 2012, I was a student at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, where I took a class called Cultural Affairs Reporting. Uh, the class was taught by a man who, I'm not going to say his name, but let's just say his name was Bob. Uh, and he wrote for a prominent sort of culture and politics website that you've heard of. Buzzfeed. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to say what it is. Uh, and he was the TV critic for it. TV criticism at the time being a new and emerging. So and I would know what it is, right? Profi- you would know what it is. All right. You got to tell me off mic. I, of course. This is I one would. of those great moments where, you know, you listen to a podcast and they go, I'm going to tell you off mic. You're like, no, I want to know who it is. Yeah. All right. If you guys see me in public, just ask me and I'll tell you. Uh, So he told us that we were going to study culture through the lens of four people, Cindy Sherman, Madonna, Lena Dunham, and uh, uh, I can't remember who the fourth one was. Okay. It doesn't matter. But I always forget who the fourth one is, but it ended up being about 80% Lena Dunham. Oh, Marilyn Monroe. That was the fourth one. But it was, it ended up being 80% Lena Dunham because he had just seen the first three episodes for this new show called Girls. He got a screener and he thought it was major. He said, this is going to be at the top of everyone's best TV of 2012 list. Uh, It's going to be huge. So uh, we all had to write an essay on girls. It could be whatever we wanted. So we saw the first three episodes. Then we saw the first three episodes again. In the same day? uh, The next class. And then uh, he couldn't come to class because he was at an art opening. So we watched them again during that time. (laughs) Wouldn't you just get up and leave? Uh, Like it's a university class. Yeah. Well, I think there was somebody there taking attendance. Okay. So the the thing about Bob was he was kind of an aging Williamsburg hipster. He was in his late thirties. He, he just had a kid and uh, we all sensed that what he saw in Linda Dunham was something of his lost youth Mm. because he wrote this 
article about girls. It was about 10 pages and it had a headline along the lines of girls, the voice of a generation, which had all of these weird uh, digressions about Chloe Sevigny and Witt Stillman and other people who were big forces when he was in his early 20s. Ugh, Wilt Stillman. Yeah, I'm not a fan either. But so uh, Girls comes out and it's, of course, a success. But the early reaction was quite divided. There were a lot of people who were complaining that it was uh, showed a privileged worldview, you know, blah, blah, blah. Bob, which of course is his real name. Uh, <laughs> I may have edited when you said the person's yeah, real name right there. I accidentally said his real name. But uh, Bob, of course, ha- had none of this. And he said, you know, th- th- this is sexism. They don't hold uh, Woody Allen to-, to this criticism, which, you know, maybe he's right on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, yeah. but it, it does matter because as a class of 20, we, of course, had very diverse opinions on the show. So we handed in our essays and like every class, to give you an idea of what this class was like, every class would begin with an update on what was happening in the world of Lena Dunham. So he showed us a picture from Lena Dunham's Instagram, which was her with her like hands over her head outside the airport at uh, in Texas going to South by Southwest. Um, and, and he said, so what does the composition of this photo tell us about Lena Dunham? And we all said, Bob. <laughs> Will said his name again. <laughs> we all said, Bob, um, Lena Dunham didn't take this photo. She's just in it. And he said, well, she's the author of the photo, isn't she? <laughs> and how do you debate that? And and there was another time when we said, uh, we said, Bob, is girls your favorite show of all time and he went well and he gave us a little smile and we said bob you're insane there have (laughs) only been three episodes and he said well it's like when penelope cruz showed up in vicky christina barcelona like in that first 30 seconds she took my breath away and i knew it was going to be a great performance (laughs) what so anyway we (laughs) that's 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 the cultural touchstone he's going to go to for an analogy so we handed in our essays and you know the divided critical reaction had come out of the show and uh it rubbed bob the wrong way so we came into class one day and he said we're going to do a pop quiz as a class we can all collaborate on it and it's about the first three episodes of girls and the questions were um in episode two when jemima kirk has her hands in front of her eyes uh what color is her nail polish so as a class working together on questions like these we got two out of ten <laughs> all of us working together and he said you know i think this is an example of the lack of critical rigor with which people are approaching girls uh people are looking but they're not seeing and uh as your punishment you're going to watch the first three episodes of girls again (laughs) (laughs) and there was almost a mutiny really like people like there, there were howls of anger and i said to him I think this is unfair because uh, you're clearly upset about the critical reaction of the show and you're transferring it on to us. And that's that's not right. And he didn't say that I was right, but uh, he didn't make us watch the first three episodes again. But we did see the rest of the first season. And what was your grade at the end of that class? Uh, I, it was just pass fail. So I passed. <laughs> it, was, it was not hard to pass that class. All right. Well, we can't go without talking about someone that just passed away recently. Uh, Adam West. My Lena Dunham. <laughs> um, so we've talked about Adam West on this podcast before, I believe, in the context of Batman versus Superman. And he came up on the Three Stooges episode, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so Adam West was a big part of your life, wasn't he, Will? I mean, I watched Batman every day after school. He was my first hero, basically. And he defined your idea of Batman, right? Like he, the Tim and, Burton Batman. Him and Michael Keaton together. Com- okay. Yeah, they they so- were the light and the dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael Keaton being the dark. Yeah. But I mean, Adam West, 
Adam West more than Michael Keaton and more than any other Batman is is Batman. Yeah. He's the one who is defined by the role. And it's been interesting to see people's critical reaction to Adam West passing. Because the thing about Adam West, it's been interesting to see people reaction to Adam West passing, which has been almost all positive. Mm-hmm. Because, like, what, are they going to throw stones? Like, people are going to go, oh, I wasn't that much of an actor. I Looking into his filmography, it was weird that he just didn't make that many films. Mm-hmm. Like, Batman defined his life. My feeling about Adam West, and I think he's very good as Batman. He's great as Batman. Uh, and... You know, it was a very deliberate performance that he did. It was very, it was, he was playing purposefully ridiculous. And I don't think that the Batman TV show would have been as fondly remembered if it wasn't for Adam West. Yeah, he he really played it up. I'll say that I've seen him in other stuff, you know, a couple of Westerns and, you know, The Outlaws is coming. He was never a great actor. Mm -hmm. He was always a little wooden. With Batman, he found the perfect role for him. And then later on in his career, he was, he perfectly transitioned into kind of the Leslie Nielsen thing on Family Guy and on Look Well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think he's somebody... I'm sure he was very upset in his career that he got so typecast as Batman. Um, but I actually don't think Batman hurt his career. No, uh, I don't think so. I think, I it, think he, it was he the had, perfect thing. Yeah, him. like he may have led to nothing if he hadn't gotten Batman, right? He might have had Richard Harrison's career. <laughs> well, Richard Harrison was in a lot of movies, yeah. but he wasn't famous. Yeah. Like if you go to someone on the street, you're like, hey, big Richard yeah. Harrison fan? They're gonna go, what? No. And like Adam West emerged in the 60s around the time when kind of that square-jawed studio leading man was going out of fashion. Yeah, like Leslie Nielsen was on the backtrack at that point. Yeah, and you know, he got after Batman ended in 68 or 69, uh, who were the stars? They were Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson and people Mm. like that, so... He caught it right on the edge of self-parody. Yeah. But we should talk about Look Well for people that don't know what it is. It's amazing. So Look Well was a pilot that was made in the 90s and was written by Conan O'Brien and Robert... Smigel. Who did like a bunch of Conan O'Brien related things. He works for Saturday Night Live a lot. And this pilot is uh, Adam West plays a washed up actor that was on a Brannigan style cop show. (laughs) But his show was called what again? I can't remember. It's like Bannigan, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, something like that. One of the running jokes is that everybody thinks he was in a different cop show. Yeah. And that he does the something that would be kind of um, assimilated in tons of movies and TV shows after the fact is that he thinks he's a real cop. Mm-hmm. So he wants to help the police do things. Yeah. And the episode is just him using his acting skills to solve a mystery. But he's Adam West and he yeah. acts like he's Batman. So there's there's a part where he's posing as a homeless man and he's and he's got the whole like the pouch on a stick over over his shoulder. And he's like, don't mind me. I'm just a simple drifter. Yeah, that's the, right. the sidewalk is my pillow. <laughs> and... Watching the episode, which you can find online, it's very funny, but it also begs the question, like, what would a series be? This is the thing. I mean, I would have loved to have seen a series, but even if it was just that one pilot episode, it's, it's gold. It's, it's perfect on its own. And I think that's what people should go see if they want to experience Adam West they haven't. But at the same time, I do want to end this on, you got a chance to interview Adam West. Yeah, it was one of the best experiences of my life, honestly, because... Uh, when you get to talk to somebody who was your very first childhood hero when you were like four years old, it feels like your life coming full circle in a way. Uh, I interviewed him, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. Uh, he told me about working with the three stooges and working on look well and everything. And, uh, he, he would, uh, he would, he said things like, uh, as I got in that costume, I thought people were going, going to laugh at me. But the strange thing is when I went out onto the set, people looked at me with a kind of awe. Because they remembered playing Batman as a child, and at the at the end of the interview, I said, uh, uh, 
you know, thanks for talking. By the way, I know you get this all the time, but thank you for being my childhood hero. And he said, oh, I never get tired of hearing that, (laughs) which was an incredibly powerful experience for me. 